Welcome to the first of three episodes of the Digital Housing Maze, during which we'll be exploring the subject of digital service with the help of panellists and witnesses from the commercial and social housing sectors. In almost every category apart from social housing, the internet has led to the so-called age of the customer, making it easier for competitors to spring up and for us as individuals to take our business elsewhere. The internet is the engine that powers a switch from person-to-person -person service to 24-7 transactional service. But the social housing sector has been slow to the party. Most digital offerings are rudimentary if they exist at all. It's easy to opine that what's present in the commercial sector and absent in the housing sector are competition and the need to produce returns to shareholders. But is that an accurate reading or are there other factors in play? Do housing organisations think that their customers don't deserve digital service? Are social housing customers so different that a personal service model is the only suitable model? Joining me to talk about these issues are Sean Holdcroft, who, after a career in the not-for-profit sector, is now seeking to disrupt that very sector through the arrival of new market entrant, legal and general affordable homes. And Louise Hunter, whose executive experience in the construction and utility sectors means that she knows how these issues look from the commercial perspective. Sean, from your position leading a startup, how does that change your ability to make inroads on digital customer service? Hi, John. Uh, great to be with you today. Um, yeah, after 20 years of working in the sector, um, it's great to be um, uh, leading a business like LNG Affordable Homes. And I guess the things that are different um, are that um, we have a blank canvas. It's the, you know, it's the most obvious part of being in a startup, um, but for a sector that doesn't often have new entrants um, at the scale that we've arrived, the blank canvas, the lack of asset legacy, the lack of technology legacy is imperative. Um, culturally, that's giving us the ability to build as we go. Um, we don't have 120 business requirements for everything that we are trying to do in the digital space that are driven by an existing customer base and an existing asset base. And I think aligned to that, it gives us space to think um, and it gives us space to explore. Um, um, and we can watch our customer base grow with us as we explore that, the, the way that digital services can work for them. Um, the learning from that is immense. Brilliant. Thank you. And Louise, what's tipped the scales to make digital change happen in the businesses you've led over the last 10 years? Hi, John. Thanks for that. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Kind of where the actual balance starts to tip. But fundamentally, I think it's about delivering a great customer experience. So, you know, customers don't compare Northumbria Water Group, the company I'm currently working for, to other water companies because we operate in a, a monopoly position, a bit like some of the social housing providers, I guess. And um, they're comparing us to Amazon in John Lewis's. Um, so, you know, we've got to look at what their experience is there. And, and what we find there is that customers are wanting self-service. They're wanting to be able to do what they want, when they want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they want that in a really personalised way. So when you start to think about how to deliver that, um, it's pretty expensive and very challenging to do that without looking at technology. And I think that's probably where we started as a business, thinking about what the technology could do to open up some of those possibilities. Um, and from there, I, I think we learned quite organically, but quite rapidly about the different benefits that technology could bring to different customer journeys. That's really helpful. Thank you. So time now for our first witness, Craig Eiley. With a background in finance, Craig co-founded Atom Bank, the first digital-only challenger bank to be granted a full UK regulatory licence. 
Craig, what's it like running a digital by default business? How is it different? Good morning. Um, it's, it's, it's different in the sense that what it allows you to do, if you set out from the position that you are going to build digitally from day one, um, it gives you a lot more license to be creative, I think. And, and, and I'll return back to this theme about the way that we think differently. Um, Atom Bank was actually um, ahead, very much ahead of its time in, in a number of areas. And in actual fact, although we designed Atom to be uh, digital from the beginning, we weren't actually allowed to build it that way from day one because the regulator, we work in a regulated framework, which is something that the housing associations are familiar with. They weren't comfortable letting us build it in the cloud from day one. So actually, in the end, it became an evolution, even though the original design um, was digital uh, from the outset. Um, I've also had the benefit of being able to do that again. Um, so I founded, co-founded another bank based in Manchester, which will hopefully will get its banking license in, uh, in the next couple of months. And that one, we were very much aligned with the regulator um, in terms of what we were able to do. So they're both very similar. They have a lot of similarities. Um, but in terms of how you're actually allowed to build, it isn't just about whether you're, you have that mindset and whether you have the digital capability. There are always other factors to, to, to think about. I'm fascinated by that. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you build by design in an inclusive way. So for, for my business, we have to serve the entire population. Um, I guess you've got choices about who you serve and, and where your target market is. And I'm just really interested in your approach to, to building an inclusive model and whether you think that's possible. It's very interesting, actually, because banking is one of those areas where they don't service the whole of the market. And you very much pick a segment that you would like to deal with and you build something that services um, that segment. Now, part of the reason for that is that bank bank products are very expensive to build and historically have been largely inflexible. Um, so banks are very good at processing. It's all about unit cost, keeping the cost income ratio low. And when you go, for example, to a residential mortgage broker and you say, you know, I want um, a second, I'm a second time buyer, I'd like a 70% loan to value mortgage. Um, we're a couple. Um, I'd like a two-year fix, and I'd like to be able to repay um, 15% every year without penalty. The broker has a suite of products that he can go to and see which organizations provide those things. But those products only have one purpose, and the, the only purpose that those products serve is that to get into a bank's processing system, it has a filter on the front end, which is what you're talking about, you're picking your segment, and the only purpose those products have to make sure that they get through that filter. Um, to do it in an all-inclusive way, it's very interesting. I talk about speed, flexibility, and price. Um, to a degree, they are mutually exclusive, but what the digital world allows you to do, it allows you to think about being able to create something that will allow you to play in all three of those spaces. If you can do something quickly, flexibly, um, and easily, there are a number of players who can do that. And they're the new players coming along that you tend to look at and think, wow, that's a game changer. How does that play into what's going on at Legal in general? Yeah, so I think it, 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 there's, it, there's a lot of alignment in terms of the thinking. Um, it it um, uh, The opportunity um, to deploy new ways of working um, into a marketplace um, um, that has, has absolutely... Um, 
been thinking about how to digitize, but has struggled to make that transition work and stick um, um, is, 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 is an absolute parallel between what Craig has just, has just talked about and, and what we're seeing and beginning to get increasingly confident about in terms of what we're doing um, around service delivery to customers. I guess, I guess my, my question to Craig or, or my, my challenge to Craig, which sort of comes back to one of the things that we, we ask ourselves regularly in, in LNG is you know, access to, to financial products, um, good, um, um, good financial management, very much in the same way as the importance of, of a good home um, that's secure and, um, uh, and safe. Um, a, a fairly fundamental parts of, of good life in this country. Um, and I guess in, in designing in what, what's now been two organizations, Craig, you know, how much does the, 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 the need for society at large um, to be able to access um, those features of, of the banking system play out in terms of the, the, the thinking that you put into the creation of those businesses? Well, I, th I think it's crucial. And I think financial education, I don't think we take it anywhere seriously enough in this country. It should be viewed as a, a basic fundamental human right. It is so important to everybody. And yet financial um, illiteracy is, 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 for me, it's a massive issue. It affects everybody's lives. It doesn't matter which segment of society that you come from. And it affects all of our children and their futures as well. Um, when we, when we try and design something, we do have that in mind. We try and make things easy and simple and, and make sure that everybody understands what it is that, that it is we do and what they are actually buying from us. We can't do everything. Um, and this, this comes back to, to, I think, Louise's point. You know, when you build a bank, you cannot be all things to all men. You have to pick your segment uh, and service that. The reason for that are there are some technical limitations but the biggest reason for it is that there are regulatory issues as well. Um, so you have to work within a regulatory framework. So, for example, if I were to come along to the regulator and say, we are going to build a bank and we're going to service every customer in the UK and we're going to provide every product under the sun and we're going to go from zero to 500 billion uh, of assets in three years, it wouldn't give you a banking license. They would not give you a banking license for a number of very good reasons, by the way. Firstly, they wouldn't believe that it was possible because nobody's ever done that before. And secondly, because they have a slightly different view of the world, which is about ensuring the, the integrity of the financial system. So, you know, you cannot create something that is going to potentially cause a, um, a structural problem in the financial sector. And we've seen the damage that that can do when you look at things like synthetic derivatives just prior to the financial crash. So there are very good reasons why you can only build things within certain type parameters. But absolutely, in answer to your question, we do think about that. So when we try and um, when we do pick our segment, we make it easy uh, to engage with us. Uh, we make it easy for the customer to access our services. And we also make sure that they understand fully how we operate as well. When you look at uh, the way that your customers use technology to access your services does that read straight across into social housing i think it probably does um and and i think one of the things that that 
people perhaps in the social housing and other sectors may beat themselves up over is that they don't perhaps think that they are as far on the digital journey as they perhaps should be. And what I would say to that is, I don't think many businesses are. Most businesses have literally only scratched the surface um, of that journey. If you think about it, again, banking is a great example and the example I've just given you. As retail customers, we live in an environment which is almost approaching a, a one where our needs are fulfilled all, almost before we understand that we need them. We're certainly in a world of instant fulfillment as consumers, um, in this country anyway. Now, we work in that space as, as individuals. The people who work in business work in that space as individuals. Mm-hmm. Their customers live in that world, but, but businesses don't live in that world which is quite strange. When you when you think about the digital agenda and uh, um, development of um, technology, for example, you usually see things coming from the business world that we then adopt as retail customers. But actually, the digital the digital revolution is being different. So we're doing this video conference now, for example. I would bet most of you were doing this long before we, you were doing it for work through things like Facebook um, and. Um, FaceTime. Uh, I bet you were doing this in your in your personal lives before you were doing it for business on a day to day basis. It's a strange one. This one, businesses are actually lagging behind individuals. I think in this particular revolution. And what's your big tip for how you catch how that how businesses catch up? Um, I think. When it comes to business, as I say, I talk about target operating models and and, and we hear a lot about businesses looking at what USPs they've got, what unique selling points. And for me, there is actually only, when you strip it right down, there is, for most businesses, unless you've invented something that nobody else can replicate, um, the only true USP is the way that you think. And we have to think differently. That for me is absolutely the key. We have to think differently. That's helpful. Thank you. Thanks for that, Craig. So we'll move on now to our second witness, Steph Goad, who's 20 years managing operations and leading change at senior level in local government and not for profits, means she can speak from inside the machine. Steph, every every housing organisation says they put their customers first. How do you think that what's on offer to social housing customers compares to what those same people get from their bank or utilities company? Thanks, John. Um, We're talking today, your introduction put down the challenge that social housing sector is slow to join the digital party. I do have to agree with you, but I've got some important caveats and I've got some observations I'd like to make about green shoots. Uh, In absolute terms, you know, if you read the Grenfell Inquiry report, you look at the documents that came out last week, white paper, uh, together with tenants, you cannot deny that the housing sector is behind the pace and needs to do more to make real what is often, as you say, on paper, the ambition to put customers first, front and and centre. However, I don't go along with kind of the implication of your question that suggests that private sector good public sector, in this instance, housing associations, bad, because I just think that is is too simplistic. Um, My father, for example, who is an 85-year-old coming relatively new to digital, had the most appalling experience with a a utility company yesterday, 
Um, they had on offer a great uh, chatbot. Um, however, his query was too complicated for its machine learning, so it just cut his call off. So that's great tech, but delivering a really, really poor customer experience. For me, I think picking up on, on some of the points that Sean has made, the bigger distinction uh, is the within sectors as well as across sectors where you have got those new entrants, the organisations that have grown up in that internet era. Housing associations by and large are not in that space. Um, they come out of stock transfers, they're the offspring of councils and having worked for 20 odd years in councils, they are the most traditional organisations. So it is not surprising that that casts a long shadow for housing associations uh, as they move forward. So it feels a bit like to me trying to, to drive digital change that a new entrance launching a new boat, I'm trying to turn a tanker. So it will take longer. However, I do think things are changing and I think housing associations are starting to experiment with some of those working practices that you see in some of those more leading edge digital organizations. So I can say from my own part that we're seeing an increased use of uh, service design methodologies, for example, uh, ethnography, data analytics, online service delivery. We're starting to provide that digital offer uh, and there is certainly demand out there you know, to, to put our social housing customers in a box and say that's not what they want is an absolute fallacy. Uh, it's definitely been a case of, you know, build it and they will come in, in terms of online service delivery. Fascinated to, to hear from Craig uh, about how there are, there's conflicts between his, his different customer groups and are there some groups that, that, that therefore get a, a worse service. I think reflecting in many ways, possibly housing associations are better at personalizing some of their service offer. Um, so our job is to work with some of the most vulnerable people in, in society to help them to maintain their tenancies. It's not just about putting a roof over their heads. And we're using the online offer to free up valuable staff time in order to redirect it to those people who need it most. So that won't be a completely digital offer ever, I don't believe but it is liberating the capacity to give that face-to-face -face support where it's needed most of all. So undeniably, there is much more to do. And I look at some private sector examples um, and I think, yeah, I really wish that we could do that. Money is always gonna be a bit of an object. Um, but from my point of view, um, we're responding for that desire for online services, but we are not sacrificing that visible landlord capacity as well because I think they are both same sides they're two sides of the same coin and it's really important that we address both of those at the same time so there's a bit of reality there's a bit of rhetoric but I think we're moving uh, positive steps in the right direction as far as in the housing sector is concerned that's sweet Thanks for that, Steph. I mean, I would actually agree with some of that, but I would put some challenge in. So I think you're absolutely right. It's never going to be a fully digital um, offer in the space that you operate in, um, I would suggest. Um, I, certainly that's been my experience in utilities. Interestingly, what we've seen is whilst we've seen a sort of a, a growth in our digital channels being used by customers by 60%, which is phenomenal and, and you know, much, much quicker than we had anticipated. 
Um, what we have also seen is that the length of our call times into our contact centres has increased, which was probably unanticipated, I think, when we were, were building the models. And that's largely because people are using the self-service of websites and apps and so on to do the quick, easy things around moving house, changing address, you know, this is straightforward bill to pay, those sorts of activities. Where customers who have got greater, more complex needs usually vulnerable customers, customers who have questions around how to pay their bill and affordability issues, they still want to have a telephone conversation. And I completely empathise with the situation that your, your father experienced with a chatbot. That's absolutely horrendous. And in my view, on it, in terms of looking at a, a brilliant customer journey, it's really not that. And so I think certainly um, for, for the foreseeable future, we will have to be offering that personalised service to customers who have more challenging and complex needs and you absolutely have a, a customer base that faces that. I guess my challenge in that would be however that there is the opportunity to move much quicker in a number of other areas so for example thinking about some of maybe the repairs and maintenance services that, that you're offering and, and we have a, a kind of read across in, in utilities to that and, and we're using things like actually starting using um using a very simple technology that everybody has at home to Craig's point earlier, using FaceTime to get customers to, to video the problem as they see it, saving endless numbers of, of journeys out from um, people to, to go and actually do the work by being able to talk people through issues on video and moving very rapidly into that space really grows very quickly. So I guess my, my challenge would be, whilst I accept you absolutely will, will need to deal with some particularly vulnerable customers in a different way in that personalization is probably best felt face to face or, or person to person there's a huge amount to go out in the digital space that i think probably you could be moving a bit quicker in don't disagree with you at all louise um in fact we are piloting that very kind of technology for our repairs our pre-inspections for some of our visits in order that we can get through uh, more of the work more speedily and less disruption to customers because they don't have to stay in and, and wait for us to to arrive um, we've got about 60% of our customers now who are online in terms of um, the an account with us. Um, so it's very much, uh, I suppose, recognizing that those customer segments, those who want to do those quick transactional things and can do so, leaving that time for us either to, to bank as savings or to be pushing forward as, um, as that more value adding activity. So yeah, totally agree with you. Pace is the key issue. And I think Part of the legacy thinking that housing associations need to move away from is that sometimes decisions take too long uh, and the, the implementation phases are too long and, and people are looking for a perfect product. We found our customers are very, very tolerant of us saying, right, we're prototyping this. We know it's not perfect. Help us to make it perfect. You know, give us your views. Come and sit with us. Show us how you use this system and then we can make it so that it's, it's intuitive to you. Um, and our, you know, getting senior decision makers to feel confident with going out with something that isn't fully formed, yes, that's that's a mindset change. But that is definitely where we need to go. Thanks for that, um, Sean. I, I just wanted to ask you something, and then and then also get Steph's reflection on it. Um, competition and return to shareholders are the two factors that are most quick, uh, frequently quoted as. Um, the reasons why the private, the, the commercial sector moves and, and the, the public and not-for-profit sectors have been slower to move. You've 
worked in both now. Mm. Um, what's your reflection on, on on that statement? Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting point, John. I think um, you know there are some fundamentals about this marketplace um, which, um, no matter where new entrants arrives from, are, are not going to change unless we see a substantial um, shift in the overall supply of homes um, and the the reality um, of life for for a large number of affordable housing customers um, is that once they're suitably housed the transaction costs associated with moving um, and the constraints on their ability to move home means that um, the fluidity of the affordable housing customer base um, doesn't support um, a hugely competitive marketplace Um, um, What's been really interesting for me about about moving over into the private sector, moving into a FTSE listed company, um, providing services into the affordable housing market is that as I arrived into the business, um, we were just establishing it. We just received sign off from LNG's group board um, to to register the business and um, create the regulated entity. Um, The process we went through with LNG um, as a group um, was was almost entirely um, about how are we going to ensure that we deliver great quality customer service and we protect the interests of our customer base, recognizing that the affordable housing market doesn't work in the way that Craig described in terms of of, of, um, of the financial market in that we could, we could target um, a, a particular sub- subsection of the market um, and then design and deliver to those households. And that was really interesting from my perspective um, because I hadn't necessarily anticipated that would be the case um, from the outset. Um, I, and so the answer to the question around how does commercialize, how does the commercialization of a private sector model drive a different outcome isn't possibly the answer that people would expect. It's not, it's not about driving to the bottom line it's about understanding where are the value drivers for the customer base um, and then delivering to those value drivers. And what struck me in Craig's um, um, uh, uh, opening section was the precision of thinking in the financial um, market around operating model and around how they create value for their customer base. Uh, and I guess the question I'd pose to ourselves as a sector is, do we have that same level of precision in thinking about our operating model and how that supports the fundamentals which are critical to our customers in terms of the value they extract from the relationship they hold with us? And I, I just picking up on that then, when you found yourself needing to think to that new dynamic, how different and how more precise did it feel than your your experiences previously? The precision of thinking um, is really important. And it's something I've certainly learned in the last couple of years. Um, the sector is already full of brilliant ideas. Um, um, it has constraints that we'll come on to talk about, but are similar to that which the incumbents in the banking sector experience that um, prevent it or slow it from being able to address some of the digitization challenges um, that it holds. But I do think there is a difference um, in the requirement um, that I've experienced in the private sector for precision of thinking and precision of thinking through the execution of that thinking than the approach that we'll tend to take um, in the existing sector. I, I would also add to that that in no small part is that made possible by the fact that we don't have 50,000 existing assets um, and 
120,000 customers living in those homes um, demanding um, um, response from the business every day. It creates the space to have precision of thought. Uh, and in our operating models, one of the changes that I think the sector needs to, to consider as it approaches the dig digitization challenge is how it creates the space and then develops the skill for people to really think and think with precision. Absolutely agree with that. Creating the space is, is really critical to develop the thinking. And I think one of the things that we've had to do as a business and one of the things that we found incredibly useful as a tool is using the sprint methodology and thinking about how to integrate innovation into our business. And that has absolutely given us that clarity of thought around real problems that customers face. So coming at things from a what is the customer problem here and then training our people to use sprint methodology and, and actually taking a week away from the workplace to develop through that problem and think about and bring in partners to to look at technical solutions and, and the use of technology has definitely moved our business on very, very rapidly indeed. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that, Louise, and, and very similar experience here. I guess I guess one of the one of the challenges we've had to overcome, and it'd be really interesting to hear how, how you've managed it in the utilities sector, is is um, as those as that sprint methodology starts to require investment of resource to be able to develop the solutions out, it's creating the faith amongst um, amongst senior leaders um, that incremental design um, will deliver results for customers, and that um, master plan or waterfall type design. Um, um, has its limitations, particularly in the digital space where the world can move so much more quickly. Um, I don't know if that's a, an experience you've shared, but but you know, culturally overcoming that challenge, I think, is a, is a, is a really um, really important part of of making that transition um, and being able to benefit from the speed at which that allows businesses to then then grow and create. Yeah, we, we've absolutely shared that and and I think it does filter through different levels and we've created a, a variety of tools, not least a, a huge innovation festival that we, we hold every year and where we, we, we actually went online and did the lead without this year so it didn't stop in, in light of all of everything that's going on and we're tackling sort of 40 problems in the space of a week. Um, looking at that. So when you get that kind of energy and, and the investment of time around that, then sort of it builds the business case for, for some of the investment that comes out of it anyway, because you can't have that kind of level of energy and noise around some problems and then do nothing with them. So it becomes sort of self-fulfilling in that sense. If I could respond to something that um, a question that, that, that Sean raised and, and, and a response and, and, and suggestions that Steph and Louise raised in terms of how to go about something. Perhaps it's controversial, but I would recommend that you ignore that at this point. Not that it's not relevant, not that you're not going to get to that. But the reason that I say that is if, you, if you're building something from scratch, you have an opportunity before you get into the mindset of build and, 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 and alter. You've got an opportunity to restate your whole business model. And let me give you an example of, of, of that from, um, from Bank North. The way that we have solved the issue of diametrically opposed business models within Bank North is we've simply separated out both sides of the balance sheet and the two issues that the management have to face about where they invest in their business and where they allocate capital, I simply took those two choices away from them. And the reason, the, the way that we did that was we basically separated the 
credit side of the balance sheet from the debit side of the balance sheet. On the debit side of the balance sheet, we'll only lend to businesses. Therefore, there's no issue about where we allocate our capital. And there's no issue about where we invest in terms of lending products. On the other side, on the deposit side, we only take deposit from retail customers. That then allow, that then leaves us free to then decide whether we want to go with an outsource solution where the market may already have a solution for that or build it internally. But we can do it along well-established lines because the industry has already solved some of those service issue problems for us. Now, when you get into the thing and you build it, you do need to go down the, the, the route of sprint methodology and all the rest of it. But you have that luxury now, whereas you'll never have it again. You will never have that luxury again. I think that that's a, a, an interesting point. I think I would, in a way, paraphrase that back as before you do, you move into a sprint methodology or as part of uh, initiating such a methodology, you need to create the appropriate space within which it will operate. So you've got to do the steps which are crucial precursors, which, as you say, are creating clarity um, about things like corporate objectives and how those corporate objectives relate to um, the, the design sprint. Yeah. Uh, Steph, how does that sound when you think about um, uh, your experience in the housing sector? I don't think we have the luxury of carving the organisation in two. I think my job feels like I'm driving the car, I'm changing the wheel and I'm redesigning the engine all at the same time. Yeah. And that's actually why I love my job. Um, yeah. For me, um, the sprint methodology is not something that I associate with just with technical IT developments. It's, it's for us, it's an important way of agile thinking, which is we're using it to drive a culture change. Because I can put in all the systems in the world, but if we haven't got the right culture sitting there, people are not going to use it and we're not going to therefore get the customer benefits. So I, I can't envisage how I carve my organization in two in the way that, that you described, Craig. And I well, think. I, 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 I wasn't suggesting that um, for, for the stage that you're at. It was simply that Sean's at the beginning of the journey and he has an opportunity that you no longer have. Okay. That, that was the point. Right. Okay. Um, um, and what's interesting, actually, Craig, is um, so probably the, 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 um, uh, the closest parallel um, in the affordable housing market for, for, for businesses um, is um, their, uh, their acquisition um, and, and um, development um, of property. Um, and then their long-term asset management um, and customer service um, track record. Um, and, and those two um, uh, interests can very often be diametrically opposed. Um, uh, and exactly as you've done in your business, we've done the same. Um, we've separated those two things out. Um, we've insulated one from the other's risks. Um, and we've allowed them to be able to both focus on doing what they're best at um, without being constrained by the other um, beyond the degree to which they they, re they are required to to enable us to fulfill our, our core value proposition to our customer base. Really helpful, thank you. So the other issue I wanted us to get into is the subject of culture. Um, and it's a question for you, Steph, really, uh, to, to, to kick us off. Um, over the last 10 years, I've, I've seen an increasing awareness and organisations trying to shift from a parent and child relationship with their customers 
to an adult to adult relationship. And I just wonder whether a part of the reason why the sector has not moved on digital is that a subset of a parent and child relationship is that they don't think their customers actually deserve a digital service. I go with your first point, and I think the traditional paternalistic view of landlord and tenant, we are still chipping away at. I don't buy the second point in terms of not deserving a a digital offer, because I think that plays right to the heart of stigmatising social housing. And I don't think that is where the sector is any longer. Um, So I have heard people say, you know, oh, well, our customers won't use it. So therefore we won't, you know, we won't build it for them. They prefer the phone. Well, all the evidence suggests that for for the majority of transactions, that simply isn't true. And they say, oh, well, you know, digital access, not, you know, that's an issue. That's a barrier. No, and most of our area is, is quite deprived. So you might assume that, you know, digital access is low. It isn't. Smartphones is the way predominantly people are accessing digital services. So it is incumbent upon us to design services that are beautiful and brilliant and intuitive on mobile devices. But that is not beyond our wit. But if if we kind of go to that lowest possible denominator uh, and assume that our tenants can't and don't want, then we are doing them and ourselves a a massive disservice. Um, So I I don't buy that as a prevailing philosophy within the sector now. That's great. Thank you. And Louise, in terms of uh, um, a utilities provider who's got a monopoly, do you recognise the parent-child issue? I do. I think I would have a a view, though, that and I guess we have a a sort of a unique relationship in this sense in that about 99% of the the people who work for us and in our employee are also our customers, so they actually directly experience the the service of their colleagues so we've got a slightly different situation in that sense and the storytelling that that we've had around our digital transformation and the way that we've engaged our people has been very much around think about how you use your phones in your personal life because it's the point that Craig was making earlier around people are doing these things day to day in their 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 lives and using technologies and actually as an employee you come to expect that um, ability to do those things in your day job as well and work in a similar sort of way so we, we have actually seen quite a, a pull from our employees around we want to be able to work in the same way that we do in our personal lives at work and have those individual devices and the latest technology and the speeds and all, all of those sorts of things and I think that really has helped people to overcome that potential for a parent-child relationship and to relate to customers in a different way that they are just like them and therefore want similar things to to they to the things that they want. Thanks for that and Sean as somebody who's now had the luxury of, of, of seeking to build a culture from a startup point of view um, what uh, what views do you offer on the the housing sector more generally of being stuck with a parent and child relationship but like wanting it to be otherwise yeah i think i think it's a it's a really important issue john and 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 i agree with a lot of 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 what steph said i think i think the 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 place where i probably um i probably sort of halt at is I don't. I don't think it's an issue. This. I don't think it's a. 
culture the sector wants, but I think it's a culture that the sector has. Mm. Um, and part of the reason it has it for me comes back to operating model. And, and that is then directly associated to why it finds um, digital transformation as challenging as it does. Um, because it's not just about um, questions about how it understands the value it creates for its customers. It, it's also um, um, partly because of its history, partly because of how it's grown. You know, lots of these organizations are, are substantial employers. They, they have significant stakes in the communities in which they exist, not just as a housing provider, but also as an employer. Um, and their operating models are very people heavy. Um, uh, and shifts in, um, in the, in the, in the digital skills, the digital transformation of the business, of those business models is going to mean a shift in the skill base of the people who work in those organizations and potentially the number of people who work in those organizations. <clears throat> and so it, there's some really difficult choices that face the sector in terms of, of how to manage um, a, an operating model, uh, which is still predominantly the same as it was 30 years ago. It still works. <clears throat> However, you, you, carve it up as a first line support, um, largely through telephone, um, backed up by a, a second line, either functional or often still geographical um, patch-based support um, um, for case management. Uh, and that operating model, almost by design, um, it, it, it reinforces um, the sense of parent-child, um, particularly where um, uh, uh, those web organizations aren't um, all that efficient at being able to manage front-end transactional activity. Um, and so uh, for, for me, I look at the, the, the challenge of how do you evolve away from parent-child, not just as a cultural challenge, um, but as an operating model challenge, which digital could absolutely unlock but it, it requires some really, really tough decisions and some really strong leadership to make that tra transition happen. Uh, and you then come back to the question of where's the driver for that? Where is, where is the, the thing that is going to force a board and an executive team to make that, make that dive, um, take all of those risks, uh, unsettle um, the established um, ways of working in its business to the extent that that might require. Um, and I think that's a really tricky question to answer. I don't think it means that digital can't happen in the, in the affordable housing market. Um, but I think it's a really hard question to, to, to come to a conclusion that you've, you've got all the answers for. Yes. Steph, I'll come to you in just a second. Um, I guess for me, what that raises is this issue of, um, on the one hand, it's the absence of a profit motive. So a board is not going to be driven by radically lower costs or has boards in the social housing sector have chosen not to be driven by the possibility of a, a radically lower cost to serve. Um, but the irony of that is that um, if you were, as you do reduce your operating cost, you increase your surplus and your surplus is the thing that allows you to deliver more benefit to the very people who you exist to serve. Um, so although the, the 
the, the pure profit motive is not generally perceived as existing in the not-for-profit sector. Um, we have, if we were guided by increasing the size of our surplus, we'd be doing more of the things that we exist to do. And Steph, I just wonder what your reflection is on that. It's fascinating. Um, I do completely agree that the sector has not had that overwhelming burning platform for some time. So all the forces of inertia that you described, Sean, that would say, well, why on earth would we disrupt all of this have been you know, heavily in play. I do think that you know, there were some inherent burning platforms in the sense that customer service was not good enough. I think then when you start layering on universal credit and you know, rent freezes and those financial um, mechanisms, now you look at what the economy is doing and the impact that that is having on our customer base. For me, that burning platform is now, you know, the flames are, are licking at my feet. Um, I suppose my position is that our board were brave and bold. And when we said, right, we want to experiment with a model that moves away from patches, moves away from specialist functional arrangements, underpinned by a, a growing digital offer, they said, yes, go on, go, go and see if you can make it work. You know, we're partway along the journey. We've had a lot of hiccups along the way, but it is delivering better customer service. We are starting to have that much more in-depth look at cost to serve. And, you know, for every bit of, of customer experience that's good, we reduce our failure demand. We, we liberate some more cash. That goes into development. We have new homes. We're on that virtuous circle, which is the very reason why we exist. It is really, really hard and it takes nerve and energy and probably a bit of insanity, but uh, I think it's it's worth the challenge. Uh, mobile technology, we all almost always default to thinking about a mobile phone. But again, if you change your point of view slightly, it's not the device that's mobile, it's the customer that's mobile. And therefore, you know, we live in a world now where customers have become device agnostic, platform, uh, device agnostic. So they won't care whether they access services via a laptop, a desktop, a mobile phone or a smart TV. And when you take that one step forward, we will eventually become a society which is platform agnostic. So, for example, if I log on to Barclays website, I want to be able to see whether my rent's in arrears with Sunderland Housing. Uh, Gen 2 or I want to be able to check my pension with LNG or I want to be able to check my insurance with Swinton or whoever without leaving that platform and, and the other thing about connectivity and the way that the world is developing we talk about the digital revolution but there are other revolutions already starting to happen so machine learning AI and, and the benefits that that will be able to deliver for us and the insights that we will get around the behavior of our customers and how we can serve them better and then on top of that, augmented reality. So we talk about people perhaps not liking to engage over the phone or they may or they may not. But with augmented reality, it's not that far-fetched to imagine a world where it looks like I've walked into a room, you've walked into a room, we've sat down, shook hands, we're dressed however we're comfortable, and we're having a conversation where we're literally passing documents. back. That's not too far away. You know, this agenda of, of, of changing the way that we service the world, it is all encompassing. And our customers, irrespective of which sector you work in, they're already moving into that world. 
we have to catch up as business. That's our that's our challenge, catching up. Well, lockdown certainly did one thing. It showed us that none of us liked wearing work clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's just finish off um, by talking about some big ideas. What's a big issue or tactic that you would identify as crucial to a successful digital transformation? We'll go around all our panelists and witnesses and one per person, please. And we'll start with Steph. Amplifying the voice of the customer. So really understanding what customer value is, how they use a service, what are their pain points, using that insight to redesign your service offer. Thank you. Louise? I'd probably start with a people thing as well, but from the inside. So implementing a digital revolution is never just about the technology. You've got to onboard your people. You've got to make sure that they understand what the benefits are, what's in it for them, and that they're really sold on it because there are a lot of scary challenges around using new technology and what's going to happen to my job is always the first question. Brilliant. Thank you. Craig? Understanding your target operating model and focus. That's brilliant. Thank you. Short and pithy. Sean. Um, we haven't talked about it a lot today, but data architecture. Um, so much of what we, um, the world that um, Craig was talking about earlier um, uh, and uh, in, inside the technology that we're, we're developing, so much of that is premised on the quality of the data architecture that underpins it. It's the currency that makes it all work. That's great. Thank you. To finish off, I'm joined by Nick Salloway, Managing Director of Curious. Nick, what do you make of what you've heard today? Thanks, John, and thanks to you and Campbell Tickell for working with the team here at Curious on this series of Digital Housing Maze shows. Um, it was great to hear about some of the amazing work around customer experience and digital transformation that's been done in housing uh, and in other sectors like banking and utilities. Uh, fascinating to listen to Craig's experience of building a digital first business from scratch and to contrast the approach he was able to take when he was designing the Atom Bank and Bank North businesses with a very different approach that Louise and Steph as incumbent businesses are taking to digital transformation. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I can't wait to see how Sean and Alan G Affordable Homes might evolve the traditional housing association operating model to unlock new sources of value for their customers and deploy technology to drive down their cost to serve. Um, I think a key theme that emerged from the conversation was the importance of culture and the need for people working in housing associations to think and work in different ways. Um, Sean's insight into how LNG, by virtue of its blank canvas as a new market entrant, has been able to create what he referred to as um, space for precision thinking. I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, but I, I think, as both Steph and Louise implied, uh, an organization's ability to make that space is intrinsically linked to its ability to also drive a program of cultural transformation uh, alongside its service and technology transformation initiatives. And, and there's no doubt this is a big challenge for housing associations, as it is for lots of other businesses. Um, as Steph says, um, housing associations are the offspring of councils and they were and are very traditional organisations. So transformation in those environments can be a big challenge. Louise talked about how Northumbrian Water 
um, have been able to create space for precision thinking uh, and also foster innovation within their business through the adoption of sprint working methodologies to address customer problems. And I think that's typical. I think many housing associations, and it sounds like including MHS Homes, from what Steph was saying, have successfully implemented sprint methodologies as they work to accelerate transformation and improve their customer experience. But um, it's clear that many housing associations do find organization-wide digital transformation very challenging. My view, um, I, I think that's um, often because there's perhaps too much focus on digitization of individual services and perhaps not enough focus on wholesale transformation of the organization's culture and its operating models. Um, so, for example, um, a team that's working to digitize and improve a particular customer experience might struggle to persuade a skeptical board to reallocate budgets so they can invest further in testing a new idea. And this is something that I know Sean talked about in, in this week's episode. But I, I think that's a cultural uh, as well as an operational challenge for the business because being willing and being able to realign capital quickly and change the way the business plans demands a completely different mindset from the executive team. So I think um, if I had to pick one thing, um, my big takeaway from this week's episode is that as well as seeking to transform their customer experience, um, which lots of housing associations are now making great progress on, the executive teams within those organizations need to also need to learn to apply what they're seeing in the technology space to their planning processes. Um, they need to work out how to align their planning, their capital deployment and their service delivery objectives uh, with a kind of fail fast, learn fast processes that are the default method for decision making favoured by agile teams within digital first businesses. So in short, I think their, their goal, uh, their big to do, if you like, should be to transform the planning and finance functions and, and in doing so uh, to move away from the waterfall processes that um, I, I think Sean mentioned uh, and, and to really embrace a culture of test and learn and continuous improvement. And I think if they can get that right in that environment, the culture and the mindset um, itself encourages um, transformation. It becomes transformative. Uh, you know, and, and in that environment, the business starts to ask itself some really fundamental questions like, you know, how will this create greater value for the customer? What are we going to test? Um, what are we going to learn if we spend money on this? Um, how might we measure whether a, a month from now the lessons that we're learning suggest we should spend more money on a particular thing? So, yeah, uh, concluding, I think um, Craig mentioned that the only real differentiator now is the way organizations think. And, and I think the answers to questions like this really will provide the basis for radical transformation of the organization, as well as improvement of its customer experience, which is the, the, the kind of key thing that um, every housing association and every other business that enters into a program of digital transformation is really looking for. That's great. Thanks, Nick. It only remains for me to thank our four panelists and Nick from Curious, and to remind you that episode two covers the drivers and barriers that support and obstruct digital transformation and also the relevance of COVID-19. You'll be able to download episode two from the 31st of January and we hope that you'll join us. Until then, 
Goodbye.